0: Chapter Twenty Nine Part Two of Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume Two by Moncure Conway. Chapter 29, Part 2. The friendships of his youth were sacred to Browning, and they were chiefly with those who had built up the peculiar character of my South Place Chapel. The first review ever written of him was by my predecessor, W. J. Fox, M.P. To Eliza Flower, he wrote shortly before her early death in 1846. I never had another feeling than entire admiration for your music—entire admiration. I put it apart from all other English music I know, and fully believe in it as the music we all waited for. Of your health I shall not trust myself to speak—you must know what is unspoken." I always believe she was Browning's first love. I believe that the advanced rationalism for which our chapel became distinguished in Mr. Fox's time was primarily due to Robert Browning. In his early youth, he was precociously skeptical and undermined the faith of Eliza Flower's sister, Sarah, now known to the world as Sarah Flower Adams, author of Nearer My God to Thee. From their home at Harlow, Sarah wrote November 28th 1827, a strange letter to Mr. Fox, whose daughter, Mrs. Bridell Fox, gave me the subjoined copy. You did not ask me to write, and perhaps will be a little thankful for what you are like to receive, a regular confession of faith, or rather the want of it, from one whom you little suspect guilty of the heinous sin of unbelief. It reads like half jest never was i more serious my mind has been wandering a long time and now it seems to have lost sight of that only invulnerable hold against the assaults of this warring world a firm belief in the genuineness of the scriptures no not the only one i do believe in the existence of an all-wise and omnipotent being and that involving as it does the conviction that everything is working together for good brings with it comfort i would not resign for worlds still i would fain go to my bible as i used to but i cannot the cloud has come over me gradually and i did not discover the darkness in which my soul was shrouded until in seeking to give light to others my own gloomy state became too settled to admit of doubt it was in answering robert browning that my mind refused to bring forward argument turned recreant and sided with the enemy and when i went to norwich music festival oh how much i lost in all the courses and praise to the almighty my heart joined and seemed to lift itself above the world to celebrate the praises of him to whom I owed the bliss of these feelings. But the rest of the Messiah dwindled to a mere musical enjoyment, and the consciousness of what it might once have been to me brought the bitterest sensations of sadness, almost remorse. And now as I sit and look up to the room in which I first had existence and think of the mother who gave it, And watched the window of the chamber in which she yielded hers in death as in life a fervent christian that thought links itself with another how much rather would she had never been than to be what i now am i have a firm belief in a resurrection at least i think i have but my mind is in a sad state And before that goes, I must endeavor to build up my decaying faith. How is it to be done? I want to read a good ecclesiastical history. I dare not apply to Papa. I dare not let him have a glimpse at the infatuation that possesses me. Had he been less rigid in his ideas of all kinds of unbelief, it would have been better for me. But I have had no one either to remove or confirm my doubts, and heaven alone knows what uneasiness they have given me. I would give worlds to be a sincere believer, to go to my Bible as to a friend in the hour of trial, feeling that whatever might befall, that would never desert me, and defying the world to rob me of its consolations. MY LIFE HAS BEEN LIKE A SET OF GEMS ON A STRING OF GOLD, A SUCCESSION OF BRIGHT AND BEAUTIFUL THINGS WITHOUT A DARK THREAD TO dim THEIR LUSTER. BUT IT WILL NOT BE ALWAYS THUS. IT IS NOT THUS NOW. AND SOME RESOURCES I MUST HAVE AGAINST THE EVIL TIME WHICH IS BEGINNING TO SET IN. THE VERY STUDY WILL BE A DELIGHT EVEN IF IT HAS NOT THE DESIRED RESULT. The consciousness that I have not examined as far as in me lies weighs heavily upon me, and to you I now look to direct my inquiries. Tis a bold step, and I wonder how I could bring myself to it. I have often longed to speak to you, but that I could not do. And now it seems as if I could not bear to speak to anyone, but I want quietly to read in my own room. What? What? why any books that you would deem suitable i shall soon be at home london and if you will lend them and let me read them my mind will at all events be relieved from whatever portion of guilt may mingle in its present uneasiness i hope this will not worry you i would not be one to add to the annoyances that visit you but that you have a sincere regard for me i now believe and how it is returned, let this confidence which you possess, unshared by anyone beside, bear testimony. I long to come home. Harlow is not what it once was, and it has added to the feeling of loneliness which has been coming on. Though I may often be mirthful, I am not always happy. But I am in a sad mood this morning, and tomorrow may be brighter in the heavens and in the heart so i will not write any more than one thing and that you know already that i am yours affectionately sally burn and forget not me and those books but the letter and low spirits mr fox had been up to that time a liberal unitarian but his opinions had by no means reached the phase indicated in the above letter his rationalism however took a new departure a year or two later, and after a careful study of his works and those of Sarah Flower Adams, I am convinced that her doubts, or perhaps his efforts to remove them, did away with his faith in a biblical revelation. Thus Robert Browning, as I believe, had something to do with the preparation of my chapel for the free thought which now characterizes it. I believe the sister's flower inspired both Pauline and Pippa Passes. Long before I knew the relations between Browning and those ladies, I had felt that Pippa's voice told the secret of the poet's experiences. At a meeting of the London Browning Society, May 23, 1884, I said, My first meeting with Pippa stands apart in memory, unique, indescribable, like falling in love. But deep answers only to deep. Seven years later, I learned how the singing of Eliza had enchanted his heart, and that before he was 16, his unconscious influence like that of Pippa had wrought far-reaching effects on and through Sarah, whose genius was just flowering. In my memorial discourse on the death of W.J. Fox, June 12, 1864, i alluded to a favorite anthem of his from browning's paracelsus and it was sung by the choir i stoop into a dark tremendous sea of cloud it is but for a time i press god's lamp close to my breast its splendor soon or late will pierce the gloom i shall emerge some day i afterwards heard that browning was present it was sarah flower adams who with the assistance of mr fox compiled and largely composed the south place hymn-book published in eighteen forty one and set in it those lines from browning i also find some record of experience in the quotation from jeremiah on the old parchment cover of his poems supra in her heart too the old fire burned after its light had sunk and along with the lines from Paracelsus appeared for the first time, 1841, her famous hymn, Nearer My God to Thee. She pressed the lamp close to her breast, but its splendors could not disperse the gloom of agonies of the world. For in the same year that her famous hymn was written, she wrote also her wonderful poem, Viva Perpetua, in which Vivia says, there are some mysteries i scarce begin to thread them but from out them up springs love flies through them like a bird along a grove and sings them to forgetfulness in joy but one e'en now doth come to hold her mute oppression yet doth crush with iron foot our power is so much weaker than our will but love omnipotent In these lines, Sarah Flower Adams laid her finger on the defect of all theological theism. Robert Browning no doubt tried to limit the skepticism he had awakened, but his familiar argument that good comes out of evil did not reach the theistic dilemma. Infliction of pain for good purposes may be the necessity of limited power, but how is it pardonable in unlimited power? sarah flower adams aspired to her god not everybody's god but everybody is now singing the hymn so many years heard only in our chapel and perhaps not one who sings it realizes that it was written by a disbeliever in christianity i do not think that browning continued his old relations with w j fox m p whom he described to me as a man of genius apt to put out his talent to work for him he may have shared the feeling of some that eliza flower really died like otilia and goethe's elective affinities of a struggle between her moral sentiment and her passion for w j fox long separated from his wife the affection of the minister for eliza flower had given rise to much gossip and after entering parliament Her friends thought him more distant. He never spoke a word against Fox, but said little about him, and now I believe that this silence was due to the painful memories with which the orator was associated. In our walks, Browning generally broached the religious topic. As the minister of South Place, I may have been unconsciously a sort of ghost from his past, I do not remember that he ever referred to the Bible as an authority, but he had read it critically. In one of his later poems, I noted that he quotes, In a beginning, God made heaven and earth. In the original Hebrew, there is no article before beginning, and in the beginning is misleading. Browning followed the Talmud, according to which there were several beginnings, which were disapproved by the deity, but at length a beginning, which he pronounced exceeding good, that is, exceeding the previous ones. My own belief is that the meaning can only be preserved by reading in beginning. Browning was not conventionally orthodox, but it was a necessity of his genius To project a divine drama into the universe he hated to give up anything scenic even a day of judgment in one of our talks he said if a man can summon his workmen and tenants at the end of the week or the year and settle with them why should not god so summon mankind at the end of life so hard did he try to believe i once asked him how anybody was suffered to doubt about a truth Of such stupendous importance as immortality because he said such certainty would not be consistent with the discipline of life were there no doubt faith would not be faith yet he never explained why omnipotence could not effect all the disciplines without the ignorance and without evil but i doubt if browning conceived of any omnipotent being He was only clear in criticizing my skeptical positions, and I could never get him to define his own positions. There was no mysticism about him, no accent of the pietist nor of the moralist, and it appeared to me curious that this man of the world should make more of theology than of ethics. To my expression of that surprise, Browning answered, MORAL CHARACTER AND ACTION DEPEND SO MUCH ON CIRCUMSTANCES THAT IT IS ALMOST IMPOSSIBLE FOR MEN TO JUDGE EACH OTHER FAIRLY. HE WAS, OF COURSE, EQUALLY TOLERANT IN RELIGIOUS MATTERS, BUT SO ANIMATED IN DISCUSSING THEM THAT I HAVE KNOWN HIM TO STOP ON THE PAVEMENT TO IMPRESS HIS POINT. THIS INTEREST IN SPECULATIVE RELIGION MAY HAVE BEEN TO SOME EXTENT AN INHERITANCE, BUT NOT FROM HIS FATHER who appeared to have little interest in theology. The family had belonged to the Congregationalist, or Independent, denomination, and Browning sometimes went to the little chapel of Mr. Foster in Camden Town. One evening this minister, very liberal, preached on nature, and Browning, meeting him at the door, said, It was interesting, but I should have preferred that instead of describing nature, you had told us the impression made by nature on you. But it was only in private that I recall any sign in browning of interest in religious subjects. In society, he was always the man of the world, and he frequented society. A young American admirer told us she had found him dinner-ed to death another tell went that on being verbally invited to dinner he made a note of the date and then said of course you mean next year there never was a more delightful table-talker but with all this he never appeared to me really english he had not the ruddy complexion due to his large fair face he was so cosmopolitan he had such taste for beauty in woman often undraped in his poems and such passion for the Greek language that I suspect there may have been some Brunidian clan in ancient Hellas. Browning was a fair amateur sculptor. When I first called on him with my letter from Curtis, he was modelling a fine head of Keats. Browning had few intimate literary friendships. He liked to talk with George Eliot and Lewes, but was rarely at the priory on their Sunday evenings when others were usually present. He had more friends among the London artists. He cared little, I think, for English politics, and his interest in the affairs of France and Italy appeared to me rather that of a spectator looking down on the arena. I could never discover whether he sympathized with Mrs. Browning's admiration for Napoleon Third. but once at my table, when Mazzini was mentioned, he said with genuine feeling, "'Poor Mazzini!' William Mallison, an intimate friend of Mazzini and enthusiast for his cause, was troubled by the exclamation, but I had often reason to recall it with sympathy and its indication of remoteness of Browning from the rush and roar of European politics. His interest was in individual minds and characters, and not in people herded together either in political or sectarian masses." Above all, he appreciated and loved the eternal feminine and merited the warm friendship he enjoyed of ladies. My first experience of an old-fashioned English inn was in Tennyson's country. It was at Freshwater, and from my tidy room in the Albion, I had a delightful outlook over the bay. On my way, traveling in an old stagecoach, I heard a good deal said about a romance in the neighborhood, A young officer of high family had formed an engagement of marriage with a pretty servant girl. The match was opposed by his family, but he persisted. No clergyman in the island could be found to perform the marriage service, and one had to be imported for the purpose. There were circumstances in the life of the servant girl which led the neighbors to take deep interest in her she was refined and educated and the Tennysons acknowledged her as a friend and were present at the wedding on arrival i sent from the inn my letter from browning and received an invitation from mrs Tennyson to dine at Farringford at eight i thus had a good afternoon for strolling on the cliffs though such is the perversity of my own nature that i soon get tired of external nature unless I meet her in the excursions of Wordsworth, or some other poet. So the best part of my afternoon was passed at the home of Mrs. Cameron, already well known to me by her artistic photographs. She was the first person in England to make the large portraits and copies of pictures, and was a much-valued friend of the Rossetti's. Mrs. Cameron was the widow of a distinguished officer in India, where she was much admired in society being not only handsome but of fine intelligence she had at that time been an amateur in photography and after her husband's death concluded to increase her means by the improvements she had discovered when i visited her and had admired her portraits of tennyson and sir henry taylor she spoke of tennyson as her best friend and alluded to the great service he had recently rendered to her. I then learned that the romance I had heard about on the coach had occurred in her house. The servant girl, so-called, whom the officer had just married, had been an intimate of her own family, and she related to me the brief story which she declared she had no objection could be made public. She was once walking in the streets of Cork when a lovely child offered to sell her flowers. Struck by her appearance, she made some inquiries, and finding that the child was an orphan and without relatives to object, she took her into her own family and had her carefully educated. She turned out to be, in every respect, a lovely girl, worthy of any position. Mrs. Cameron presented me with a picture of the bride, who was certainly refined and beautiful enough to be set in the poetry of Tennyson, where I think I have met her. She was finely educated and was accomplished in music. All of this went on while the Camerons were in affluence. When Mrs. Cameron, who had no children of her own, became a widow in reduced circumstances, the grateful adopted daughter insisted on doing the work of a housemaid. The freshwater legend was that the young officer had seen her sweeping the steps in front of Mrs. Cameron's pretty cottage. IN FACT, HOWEVER, THE YOUNG MAN, WHO HAD ACQUIRED SOME DISTINCTION BY A PHILOSOPHICAL ESSAY, HAD VISITED THE Tennysons, AND ON HIS WAY BACK CALLED TO GET MRS. CAMERON'S PORTRAIT OF THE POET. THE GRACEFUL YOUNG GIRL MET HIM AT THE DOOR, AND BEING A MAN OF SOME GENIUS AS WELL AS TASTE, HE ASKED MRS. CAMERON ABOUT HER. MRS. CAMERON TOLD HIM THAT SHE WAS TAKING CARE OF THE HOUSE BECAUSE SHE WAS GRATEFUL, BUT WAS A REAL LADY. She regarded her with as much honor and affection as if she were her daughter. The Tennysons were greatly pleased by the betrothal, and when, on account of the objections of the officer's aristocratic relatives, the village clergyman refused to perform the ceremony, Tennyson brought one from a distance, and I think the wedding festival was at his house, Farringford. The Tennysons withdrew from the village church, and the clergyman was becoming unpopular. Although I have placed this visit to Mrs. Cameron in June 1863, I am not certain that it may not have been on one of my later visits, for the Isle of Wight and Lymington while Allingham was there, were my favorite haunts, and my adventures were duly chronicled in my South Coast saunterings in England, Harper's Magazine, where, however, the times and seasons of my adventures are not noted. When I was there, the officer had shortly before taken his wife to India, where his career was philosophical rather than military. He founded at Calcutta a positivist church. I was the only guest at Farringford. Mrs. Tennyson was attractive and lighted up the table by her cordiality and pleasant voice. After dinner, the poet took me up to his study where he sat smoking his pipe having given me a cigar, and talking in the frankest manner. Among other things, he told me of the people who waylaid him, the incidents being sometimes amusing. Two men, for example, having got into his garden separately, one climbed a tree at the approach of the other. The other, seeing him, called out softly, I twig, and immediately climbed another tree. And yet he declared that no man was more accessible to any one who had any reason for wishing to see him so i for one certainly found the hospitalities of farringford having been offered to me beyond my willingness to accept them it had been a stormy evening and the night was of pitchy darkness when i started out against invitations to remain to go to the albion tennyson insisted on showing me a nearer way but in the darkness got off his bearings. Bidding me walk close behind him, we went forward through the mud, when suddenly I found myself precipitated six or seven feet downward. Sitting in the mud, I called on the poet to pause, but it was too late. He was speedily seated beside me. This was seeing the laureate of England in a new light, or rather hearing him under a novel darkness. Covered with mud, groping about, he improved the odd occasion with such an innocent run of witticisms and antidotes that I had to conclude that he had reached a condition which had discovered in him unexpected resources. His deep bass voice came through the congenial darkness like mirthful thunder, while he groped until he found a path. That this should have happened after dinner, he exclaimed, do not mention this to the temperance folk. Next morning I was punctual to an appointment Tennyson had made to take me around his manor and favorite cliffs. Mrs. Tennyson met me with the explanation of our fall. She had directed the gardener to make an addition to a walk in the garden, which required a deep cut of which Mr. Tennyson had not been informed. She expressed more regret than was necessary, but smiled at the drollery of her husband's account, and declared the place should be named... Conway Walk. Tennyson was in every way different from the man I expected to see. The portrait published with his poems in America conveyed some of the expression around his eyes, but not the long head and the long face. Moreover, of all the eminent men I have met, he was the one who could least be seen before he had spoken his deep and blunt voice and his fondness for strong saxon words such as would make a tennysonian faint if met in one of his lines his almost quaker-like plainness of manner albeit softened by the gentle eye and the healthy humanity of his thought did not support my preconception that he was the drawing-room idealist when in speaking of robert browning with high estimation he yet wondered at a certain roughness in his poems It rather amused me, for Browning put the utmost daintiness, while Tennyson put all of his roughness into his talk. He did not seem to me a typical Englishman, despite his passionate patriotism. He said but little about the war in America. I think Browning in his letter may have intimated to him that I was much concerned about the slaves and friendly to England for he evidently restrained himself in his resentment of the abusive england in america such resentment i considered natural and just so there was no controversy in that direction it was the day after i had written my letter of june tenth eighteen sixty three to the confederate mason but i cannot remember our conversation about that nor indeed about anything In his library, Tennyson put me in an easy chair, then went on telling good antidotes. These are not about his contemporaries, but concerning personages of a great generation. But I admired him most out on the cliff. When he had accompanied me along the sea on my way to the station, then turned and walked slowly back, I gave a look at him from a hundred yards' distance, and he appeared to me the ideal prospero summoning around him the beautiful forms that will never fade from his isle tennyson wrote me a letter in response to my book the sacred anthology a copy of which i sent him he wished me to print an edition of smaller size which one could carry on his walks he was astonished to find that the non-christian peoples were so exalted in their religion and ethics and no doubt startled to find out how many ideas in his own poems had been anticipated by oriental poets in later years i had reason to deplore the extent to which tennyson was ignorant of the non-christian people in england in november eighteen eighty two his drama the promise of may was performed at the globe theatre in london and although i should have been distressed as a free-thinker had the audience applauded tennyson's notion of our tribe i was troubled at the utter failure of his religious play knowing how he would be hurt by it i was not there the first evening when lord queensberry made a scene by protesting from his box against the calumnies against secularists it was suspected by some that queensberry had been enticed by the manager, to make a scandal, for it was the means of crowding the house the second night. Lord Queensbury had taken a box for this occasion also, and invited Mrs. Conway and myself into it, but promised he would not make any demonstration. A Sunday had been intervened between these first two representations, and several utterances had been cut out, among them what the girl said of her lover, "'Yet I fear he is a free-thinker.' "'This had been greeted on the first night with loud laughter. "'But no chord in the public breast was touched. "'The pathos and the effect of bathos, "'the audience grew serious only when humor was attempted "'and roared with laughter at the solemn parts. "'The laureate had evolved his typical free-thinker in his library.' Had he, instead of wandering about incognito among farmers, as once he did, made some excursion among the secularists in London, he would have discovered that though the skeptic may be unhappy, he is the last man to make others unhappy. It would be impossible to find more affectionate and tender-hearted and benevolent men than Darwin, Huxley, Tyndall, and other eminent unbelievers." Freethinkers have as much devotion as the orthodox, though it is lavished on human beings. The play revealed Tennyson's weak point as a poet. He could not invent a plot. He was the inspired storyteller, but the story had to be given. His Ulysses, Princess, Arthurian idols, all his great works are the exquisite telling of old tales of his four dramas neither had the least chance of popular success but the falcon the cup and queen mary had plots of classic origin and being finely mounted and acted did no injury to the poet's fame in the promise of may the laureate attempted a plot of his own and it turned out to be a mixture of police court seduction case and a curate's sermon It is doubtful whether any play with a theological purpose had been put on the stage since Marlowe's Barabbas. That play represented a Jew evolved out of Marlowe's inner consciousness who went about committing every kind of crime from the pure love of it. In the following century, that play was travestied by Cyril Tourneur in The Atheist. Shakespeare had answered Marlowe's Barabbas with Shylock, showing that the Jew was a man impelled by human motives if tennyson's play had appeared two centuries before it might have been a sort of reply to cyril tourneux's atheist showing that the unbeliever had at least humanly conceivable motives for his deeds a further comparative study was suggested by the fact that Marlowe was personally an atheist and that many were made sceptics by tennyson's in memoriam tennyson as his poem despair shows waged war against the orthodox dogmas that seem cruel as much as against atheism a friend of his told me that he was once at a dinner company at faringford when in the evening they all went to a window to witness the burning of dry brushwood in the garden there were in the company a roman catholic baronet and his wife and tennyson said loudly Lady, how would it do to throw a man into that fire to burn through eternity? That's what you believe is going to happen to me because I don't believe the creeds. The lady was embarrassed, but Tennyson was excited and persisted in the attack until her husband took him by the arm and said, "Ah, uh, She doesn't pretend to know anything about such things. End of chapter 29 Part two.